Let's read from God's Word, Isaiah 52, verse 13, starting there. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. Just as many were astonished at you, so his visage was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths at him. For what had not been told them they shall see, and what they had not heard they shall consider. Who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we have, like sheep, have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living, for the transgressions of my people he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And he bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you for the revelation of your word that you have given us. Lord, we reach, we reach this part of Isaiah's prophecy where he is telling us the story of the ransomed sinner and how we shall not die because we are held in the body and the blood of our Savior, the servant who died on the cross. I pray that your word would pierce the hearts of your people and that you would keep my mouth from air as I bring your word to them today. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Now, I've included this quote on the top of your notes page. It's from Oswald Chambers, and he wrote the following. All heaven is interested in the cross of Christ. All hell is terribly afraid of it, while men are the only beings who more or less ignore its meaning. And I think his assessment cannot be more correct today, for we live in a society, and we live in a time and amongst people who reflect what Paul called the views of the Jews and the Greeks. For the cross today is both foolishness and a stumbling block. It's foolishness in that the idea of a spiritual realm, a crucifixion, a resurrection, it's so antithetical to the modern mind. 
And yet it's a stumbling block because even among Christians, the idea of sin and wrath and judgment and sacrifice is discarded or minimized in order to emphasize merely love and forgiveness. Like Rodney said today, there are two parts to this discussion that we're having today. And even where interest is piqued in the hearts and the minds of men, it seems as if there is no way in which we will obscure the story of the cross in order to make it more palatable or politically correct, or perhaps today the word is more relevant to the people we're speaking to. Now, I could have, and I seriously thought of taking time in the sermon to discuss the different theories of the atonement that are thrown around today, and they're not new. They've come from historical discussions in the church. Some of these I put on your outline. They're the ransom, the satisfaction, the moral influence, and then a whole host of subsets that flow from those. The recapitulation, dramatic, mystical, government, commercial obedience. And I could go on and on with all the different ways that we've come up with. But the only thing I'll say about this, and I've included this on the notes page as well, is that when you can consider and look at atonement theories... Christ's roles of prophet, priest, and king must not be discontinued in your atonement doctrine. For he is our example, he is our mediator, he is our victor, he is all of these things. And any theory that shortchanges Christ and one of his roles and what he accomplished on the cross is not reflecting the totality of what he did for you. But as I prepared for this sermon from Isaiah's prophecy, it's a continuation of one I had started about three weeks ago from Isaiah 49, and I'll reference that a few times. I felt that God wasn't drawing me to discuss the strengths and weaknesses of these different theories, although it is very important to discuss them, and there are other times when, when I hope you will do so. But instead, He was drawing my eye merely to the, to the beauty of this passage. And you can tell it when you read there. Once again, Ronnie, he, he opened the door for me here because I believe uh, the, the way we've broken up the chapters here does not do justice to the passage. And it's just another example of how this whole idea of Isaiah flows from the last part of 52 all the way through verse 13. And so I hope today as we go through this passage and, and take it apart piece by piece that you'll just the beauty of what Christ did for you as God's people on the cross will pierce your heart today as it, as it did mine as I read through this again. And so today, after we look at this prophet's view of the cross, Isaiah's prophecy, unlike the men that Oswald Chambers wrote about in his quote, you will not be able to ignore the meaning of the cross. You will not be able to run away from the truth that while the wages of sin is death, there is one who has conquered death and paid those wages for his people. And lastly, you will be accountable to God for answering the question that Isaiah posed to his original audience. Who has believed our report? Now that question being asked, don't forget as we go through this passage, we're going to be convicted by Isaiah for our part, our role in the death of the servant, which we'll see today. But remember, this is ultimately a story of victory. There are two parts, as Rodney said. So I want you to keep that in mind as we go through it. Both the parts of our sin are placed in the death of the Savior and then His victory and what He accomplished. For it certainly was finished when He was done with that work.
So now if you would turn to your outline, notice as you already have, I've included the last part of chapter 53, or 52 with chapter 53 because like I said, Isaiah's thought is pretty consistent as he flows from 52 into 53. I've titled this last part of chapter 52, A Foreshadowing by the Prophet. Let's read through that again. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. Just as many were astonished at you, so his visage was marred more than than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. So he shall sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths at him. For what had not been told them, they shall see, and what they had not heard, they shall consider. Now the reason I use the term foreshadowing here is because Isaiah is giving us a quick glimpse into how he's going to arrange and expand the discussion of the atonement later in chapter 53. If you notice in verse 13, we start here with a passage of victory and exaltation. We start with the good news right off the bat. He tells us we're talking about God's servant. And this reminds us of what we had talked about in Isaiah 49 from a few weeks ago. This servant, he is the true servant Israel. He is the Messiah. He is going to bring salvation not just to the Gentiles, and not just to the Jews, but to the, the Gentiles throughout the entire earth. And he, knows, and he tells us right away that this servant is going to, as he says in verse 13, deal prudently, or translated differently, he is going to prosper greatly in the work that he does. And then he tells us how we're going to be able to see and verify this work. This Messiah, the servant, is going to be exalted. He is going to be lifted up. Let's see in the New Testament from Acts 5.31 how this is described. Him God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Philippians 2.9 Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every other name. And from the Old Testament, Psalm 148.13, Let them praise the name of the Lord, for His name alone is exalted. His glory is above heaven and earth. And yet as quickly as Isaiah brings us into this picture of the exaltation, this victorious lifting up of the Messiah, he leaves us no time to ponder that here in the last part of chapter 52 as he moves us on to the next part of his arrangement in verse 14. The picture of glory that we had in verse 13 is replaced by an introduction into the servant's crucifixion experience. Isaiah states there in verse 14 that many would be astonished at the servant. Now the word astonished is not like we often think of it in a good way. The Hebrew word here, shamem, means appalled or stunned or stupefied at what they would see. He gives us a look into how the Jewish people would view the servant of God, how they would view the Messiah, because they are going to utterly reject his claims of lordship given his debasement prior to and especially as he went to the cross. I want us to turn to Matthew 27. We'll read from verse 39 to 44. I want you to hear the words of the people, feel their utter contempt for Christ as he sits there on the cross. Matthew 27. Verse 
starting in verse 39. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads, and saying, You who destroyed the temple and built it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests, also mocking with the scribes and elders, said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. If he is the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe him. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now if he will have him. For he said, I am the Son of God. Even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him with the same thing. Once again, like I said with verse 13, this is just an introductory look by Isaiah into his arrangement. And so now we'll look to the final part of his foreshadowing and see the giving of the gospel, the giving of what Isaiah would call in the next chapter, a report. Now this first report is different than the one we'll see in chapter 53 because this gospel, this word of truth, this revelation of Christ is going to be delivered or as we see in the first part of verse 15, it's going to be sprinkled or poured out on many nations. In the past, where this revelation had been withheld from the most part from the vast majority of Gentiles, It is now going to flow out to them. This is a continuation of that same theme from Isaiah 49 where it says that Jesus' work would not be enough just for the Jewish people, but it would go into the coastlands of the Gentiles. And we see in the last part of 15 that they shall have to consider this gospel, consider this report. They must perceive and discern and to believe the truth of this new message which was coming to many of them for the first time. We see a continuity in all of Isaiah's prophecies. Here we have a reference to the expansion of the kingdom, a revelation of the gospel message, a message which we have already seen by Isaiah would consist of the Messiah rejected, crucified, resurrected, and then exalted. And then I want to point out one more thing and then I won't reference Isaiah 49 anymore for you, especially those who weren't here. And that's in that, in that prophecy from Isaiah, he talked about what the servant would do, the work of the servant and how it would flow into all the world. And yet, today what we're seeing from Isaiah is he's going to show us how this is going to take place. The first prophecy, kind of the big picture, and now we're getting into the specifics. What is going to take place in the atonement here. So now let's consider the two things that we've seen already in this last part of chapter 52. First, Isaiah's already prophesied, in short, concerning the servant's exaltation, crucifixion, and the spreading of that word, that gospel, throughout the nations. Now secondly, he's given us an arrangement as to what he's going to do in the next chapter, how he's going to expand on this, because he sees the importance and the magnitude of the events surrounding the Messiah. So he's letting us know here how that's going to happen. So now we can move on from the last part of chapter 52 and move into 53. We're going to take that arrangement that Isaiah gave us and we're going to place it over the meat of his prophecy in chapter 53. Now this time, we're going to start with the gospel. We're going to mirror image that that, uh, arrangement that he gave us. Let's read from verse 1. Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? 
Once again, this part of Isaiah's prophecy is consistent with what he has told us earlier. And that is a large majority of the Jews to whom this report is directed to would not believe the message that was contained in it. It would fall on deaf ears on the part of the Jewish people. I'm going to turn to John 12, 37 to 41 and just read how John uses this very same phrase of Isaiah in the context of how it played out in the New Testament. John 12:37. But although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him. That the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, because Isaiah had said again, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they should see with their eyes and understand with their heart, lest they should turn so that I should heal them. And so John gives us the answer to that question that Isaiah asked, who has believed our report? And the answer was, that report fell on deaf ears. It may not be with us here on this day. But this is all the time that Isaiah allows us to talk about the report, the giving of the gospel, because for him, the focus is not necessarily the report here, but it's what is contained in that report. What is the gospel message that flows forth? So having talked on that, just real briefly on the report, a rejection of the gospel by the Jews, Isaiah moves into the second part of his arrangement by expanding of the work of the servant on the cross. Let's read verse 2 and 3 again. For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, And as a root out of dry ground, he has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Now in this section, we see mankind's natural rejection of Christ. If we look at Isaiah's words, we see him describe the servant as a tender plant. It's a picture which is echoed by the prophet Ezekiel in the 17th chapter, verse 22 and 24, where God is the one who is seen as planting and caring for this tender plant as it grows into a large cedar, a picture of a majestic kingdom. I'm going to read from Ezekiel 17 right now. I want you to pay attention. Listen to the words, I will, or God will. Listen to how He is growing the kingdom in this passage. Thus says the Lord God, I will take also one of the highest branches of the high cedar and set it out. I will crop off from the topmost of its young twigs a tender one and will plant it on a high and prominent mountain. On the mountain height of Israel, I will plant it and it will bring forth bows and bear fruit and be a majestic cedar. Under it will dwell birds of every sort in the shadow of its branches. They will dwell. And all the trees of the field shall know that I, the Lord, have brought down the high tree and exalted the low tree. I have dried up the green tree and I have made the dry tree flourish. I, the Lord, have spoken and done it. Notice here, as Isaiah says and Ezekiel echoes, the kingdom of this plant is not expanded because of the natural fertile soil where it is planted. Isaiah tells us that it is as a root coming out of dry ground or out of a desert. The kingdom doesn't grow because of the natural desire of sinners to enter the kingdom of Christ, 
but it grows up and before and in the power, the supernatural power of God that causes the root to grow as out of dry ground. And is it not true as we see the kingdom of Christ unfold before our eyes in the New Testament, continuing forth to this time, did it not begin with the humblest of people, the humblest of means, and oftentimes in the most adverse of circumstances? For God wills it, and it is, is the answer to that. In the second half of Isaiah's prophecy in verse 2, we see that there does not seem to be anything inherent, at least according to the standards of power and acceptance in our society or societies in the past that would draw men to this servant. He has no appearance. He has no honor, no majesty. He has no splendor to entice the souls of men to follow him. And I think Isaiah accurately indicts all of us here. And it is an indictment. It is a judgment against the natural man. I mean, in this world, do we see people enamored with the humble person, the gracious, the selfless, or the just plain normal person? Or is it the exotic, the powerful, the aggressive, the wealthy, and the privileged that attracts our eye so quickly? Now, I read something on the internet uh, recently which fits nicely into the discussion although I admit the survey itself is a little strange. You can judge for yourself. A British psychologist had measured the testosterone levels of men and women after they listened to the sounds of various car engines, both from the ultra-expensive, the Lamborghini, the Ferrari, and all these other cars I don't even know the names of, down to the lowly, in their words, cheaper Volkswagen. No offense to those that own Volkswagens out here. Now, the results of the study showed that both men and women were attracted to, of course, the more expensive cars just merely by the sounds that their engines made. And in fact, the poor lowly VW caused a decrease in the levels of testosterone (laughs) according to the measuring that this guy did. So, now, having given you this description, and you can file that away in the in the back of your mind, in the cabinet of useless trivia. But the point is to think about what qualities draw you to others today. You see, Isaiah condemns all of natural men because we would naturally overlook the lowly and the humble to surround ourselves with the attractive and the familiar. We look at the end of verse 3. He is a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and we hit our faces from him. Ask ourselves if that would normally be the person that we would surround ourselves with. The person who's projected as kind of the loner, the rejected person. This is not somebody who's the life of the party. This is somebody who is very serious and wants to talk about serious things. And in general, I think you'd agree, natural man and oftentimes ourselves, our sin nature, we're drawn to those things that are not personified in Christ here. And even if we cannot answer the question ourselves, Isaiah isn't going to let us off the hook that easy. He says, we would hide our faces from this man, from the Messiah. We would mock his sense of selflessness. We would hide our faces from him and when others would reject him, we would follow suit right behind them. 
Isaiah uses the word, we, would, we did not esteem him. It could be translated also, we would not judge him worthy of our affection. And let that settle, settle into your mind for a second. The one who would pay the price for our sins, go through all we see here, and we would not even judge him worthy of our affection or our love, what Rodney talked about. We love him because he first loved us. And yet Isaiah tells us we would not judge him worthy of our affection. Now Isaiah, he doesn't stop there. He continues to simultaneously convict us of our sin while emphasizing the graciousness of the servant as he went about doing the work of the Father. We read from verse 4, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Isaiah repeats our rejection of the Messiah, but tells us that the servant finds himself in this place because he would take our griefs, he would take our sorrows, our sicknesses, our pains, all of these for his people upon himself. Now, all analogies fall short, but I'm going to go forward with this one anyway. It is as if we are in need of a transplant. And somebody comes up to us and offers us that body part that we need, despite the fact that they're going to live with lifelong repercussions. Then to top it off, after the surgery, we then reject or turn away from that person because they're no no longer necessary to our well-being. And in fact, we find them a little repulsive in this new state that we find them in. And then going even further, we turn the tables on that friend, if we could call him that, and tell them that the whole situation was really their fault in the first place. Isaiah points out that we would see, the Jews would see the servant suffer. They would see his rejection, or what they would understand as his rejection from the Father, and then conclude that he was there not for their sins, but for his own sins. That God had afflicted him for what he had done, or perhaps for what these other sinners over here had done, but definitely not for what we had done. A story I read recently concerning Rembrandt illustrates this point well. You may have heard this story before. If you were to look at Rembrandt's painting of the three crosses, your attention would be drawn first to the center cross on which Jesus died. Then as you would look at the crowd gathered around the foot of the cross, you'd be impressed by the various facial expressions and actions of the people involved in the awful crime of crucifying the Son of God. Finally, your eyes would drift to the edge of the painting and you would catch sight of another figure almost hidden in the shadows. Art critics say this is a representation that Rembrandt had put in the painting of himself for he had recognized that by his sins he had helped nail Jesus to the cross. And that's the picture that Isaiah is trying to drive home here. It's our sins if we are his people that put him on the cross. Read with me from verse 5 and 6. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him 
the iniquity of us all. Beautiful couple of verses there. It lays out why the servant must suffer. And it is not for anything that he had done, but it was solely the act of a loving and a willing God to take upon himself the sins of his people. We know God tells us the wages of sin is death and the wages that he would bear would not be his own, but that of his chosen people. Hear how Isaiah describes it. And I'm going to offer up some other translations to really hit home here. The servant would be wounded, polluted, or profaned. The Son of God profaned for his people. He would be bruised, crushed unto death. He would pay the price of our peace with with God. He would take our discipline, our chastisement. And lastly, we know it is only by His stripes, only by His broken body that we are healed. Echoing one of the universal truths of Scripture, Isaiah then tells us that we are all included in this judgment. For all have gone astray. All have turned away. And our sin, the iniquity of the servant's chosen people has been placed upon him. If salvation is to be found, it will only be found in the body of this servant, the Messiah. There is no plea of ignorance allowed today, for he is reminding each and every one of us that without the burden that the servant placed on himself, none will be righteous enough to merit eternal life. None. We continue on in verse 7 through 9. We'll read that together. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the, of the living, for the transgressions of my people he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit. In his mouth. On one side, here we see Isaiah pointing out to us all the trials the servant would go through oppression, affliction, slaughter. He would be cut off, stricken, and killed. Then, notice another picture he starts to put in there. Isaiah is starting to transition us from the second part of his arrangement to the third, the exaltation. We see the servant pictured as a willing sacrifice for his people. It says he protested not with his mouth. He never used pleading. He never used deceit to alter his circumstances. He allowed himself to be taken to the end where he was going. Think to the New Testament where Christ had brought up the idea to his disciples one of the earlier times that he would have to go and die for them. And Peter tried to tell him, no, Lord, there has to be a different way. What did he say? He said, get thee behind me, Satan. Peter did not understand the end that the Messiah, that Christ would have to go to, he would willingly go to in order to die for that very person who was trying to stop him from reaching that end. But he allowed himself to be led to that end for us as people. Now I want to pay particular attention to two different things in the passage that kind of stand out from the rest of that verse 7 and 9 that we just looked at. Let's read verse 9 again. And they made his grave with the wicked but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. 
Notice here that Isaiah tells us that no matter what the servant would go through, despite all of this, despite the intentions of men in determining the fate of Jesus, or so they thought, despite the fact that they would consider him a lowly criminal and a blasphemer, worthy of a grave with the wicked, the servant is seen to be above all their works, all of their plans. He will be exalted in the end. And he goes willingly to that end. And now read with me from verse 8 again. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgressions of my people. He was stricken. What Isaiah is saying here is there was no way to stop what the servant was coming to do. He would fulfill the task that he had on the cross and throughout eternity. No one can declare, as it says here, or limit his generation. In the end, no matter what the plans of the enemy, the servant would prosper on the cross and his victory would echo through the generations in a kingdom that would never cease. Now we're almost through, but not yet, with his exhaustive prophecy concerning the servant's mission because now he's going to reveal that everything that the servant would go through would be a fulfillment of the Father's plan. And this is very important here. And before we look at verses 10 and 11, I want to just real quickly go over Genesis 3, 14 and 15. The Proto-Evangelium, or the first gospel. Because Isaiah's prophecy ties in many of these same things that God gave to our first parents as it concerns the servant's future work. From Genesis. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Notice especially the emphasis on seed and bruising from this prophecy from Genesis as we read Isaiah's verse 10 and 11. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many. Notice that Isaiah uses these same words, a bruising and a crushing of the servant. And it would be pleasing to the Lord. And why would that be so? It's because we've seen it is a fulfillment of God's will. It was a fulfillment of His promise that He gave to Adam and Eve. His plan, which was brought about after their sin, brought misery into human race, would be fulfilled. And the way it would be fulfilled, Isaiah tells us in this passage, by the servant who would die on the cross. And it did just not pleasure the Lord. It did just not please Him. But look in verse 11. He will see the travail or the distress of the soul of the servant and what the Father will be satisfied. The Father would be satisfied because His will was done by the servant on the cross, his son. And then notice again a reference to the seed. 
This parallels the phrase up above about the generation not ending. His seed, shall, he shall prolong his days of that seed and the kingdom that would flow from that seed, Jesus Christ. And we see that truth today as this kingdom continues to grow in the world. And so that concludes Isaiah's expansion of the crucifixion of the servant. It's a detailed count of our sin, our rejection, but the servant's faithfulness and the father's satisfaction. Both sides of that are covered equally by Isaiah. And so this leads us to the pinnacle of Isaiah's passage, the completion of his arrangement, the description of the servant's exaltation and his ultimate reward. Let's read from verse 12. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. He bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Calvin writes beautifully concerning this passage that Isaiah uses a comparison from the ordinary form of a triumphal procession held by those who having obtained a signal or a great monumental victory, are commonly received and adorned with great pomp and splendor. Thus also Christ, as a valiant and illustrious general, triumphed over all the enemies that he had vanquished. Isaiah tells us in this passage that the servant would then be adorned with the spoils of victory, the spoils and the rewards. And not only would these come to him, the Messiah, for the work he had done, but then he's going to pour out those things on his people, us who have done nothing. He's going to share those blessings with his brethren. Jesus himself referenced this word spoils from Luke 11.22, that which he was going to plunder from Satan himself. But when a stronger than he comes upon him and overcomes him, he takes from him all of his armor in which he trusted and he divides his spoil. And then we know from the last part of Matthew that all power and dominion are given to our Savior, given to the Son, because He fulfilled the Father's will in all that He did. And so this idea is prevalent throughout the New Testament. Christ and His triumph would accrue honor and glory and then He would pour out those blessings on His people. Blessings from His victory on the cross. And what's important to remember here, these blessings weren't just for us on this side of the cross. From the first man forward, everything that God gives to us today and back then was because of what the servant was going to do on the cross. And he even told Adam and Eve that when he gave them the promise of that servant who would come and crush his enemy. And then Isaiah... As we've seen, he pays so much attention to the cross in this passage and he recognizes that people are always drawn to the illustrious generals, Calvin called them, where the the victor and the rewards and what was gained through the work. He doesn't allow us to separate verse 12 from the rest of the prophecy that we had already gone through. He showed what a victory would cost. And so he refreshes our mind in case we are so quickly forgot it. It cost an innocent man pouring his soul unto death. It cost the Son of God being numbered 
with the transgressors. It cost Him to bear the sins of many, to bear our sins if we are His. And lastly, He pours out His intercession on us, not only on that day, that work on the cross, for it was finished, but He intercedes for us even today as we continue to sin, even though He has already saved us. He is today our mediator and our intercessor. All of these things are the price that the servant paid on that day. And so today we sit here in this building, we we read and we discuss the words of this prophet, and then we are confronted with the same questions he gave to his audience. Who has believed our report? Who has believed this report? Do we have blind eyes or deaf ears as was described of the Jewish people? Or has God opened up your heart today or in the past to see the depths of your sinfulness, to see yourself next to the cross, our very real part in the death of the servant? For He bore the sins of His people. He bore your sins. He bore my sins if we are His. Do we truly understand the nature of our guilt? Or as a Christian musician proclaimed, do we look beyond the empty cross forgetting what our life has cost? Do we so quickly forget all of what is said here in Isaiah's prophecy, what it cost our Messiah to purchase salvation for His people? We've seen that God prophesied to man in the garden at the point of His greatest failure And then he told them that he would bring them salvation. And then Isaiah here continues on in the vein of that prophecy. He tells us what and how that prophecy would be fulfilled. What it would cost the Messiah, the servant on the cross. And then the New Testament tells us that the crucifixion in all of its horror and the exaltation of Christ and all of His glory is a fact. And that fact is our Gospel message. That is the report. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Hear the message of our Savior's death, His sacrifice for our sins, and revel in the glory of His triumph and in His everlasting kingdom. As you go out today, Hear, believe, and to live this report. Amen. Dear Heavenly Father, I, I know that so often we get caught up in our own lives and though we've placed our trust in Your hands, we look to our own understanding. We look to our own path. We do not see that our sins are grievous, all of them, from the, from the least of them to the greatest. And we do forget the cost of what Your Son paid on the cross. Lord, let Your Word, this truth, let the Gospel of not only our sin, but the salvation which You purchased go forth into the hearts of Your people Lord, may you regenerate the hearts of those who are lost and yet encourage and strengthen those 
in their faith who are working to make their calling and election sure. Lord, thank you for revealing these truths to us. Thank you for telling us of your love, your plan, and then your answer to our sin. We just thank you for this time where we can come together to enjoy your word. And it's in Jesus' name, our Savior, that we pray. Amen.